Today's guest is Jade Newton. Jade started her career in marketing, but leveraged her linguistics background to propel her into the world of AI, the focus on natural language understanding. Since then, she's worked with some of the top companies in the world, annotating and managing their data pipelines. In addition to this, Jade is passionate about sociolinguistic research and recently released a paper on issues of diversity in dialect and language representation. Keep listening to learn about how the world of data annotation has evolved, overlap of diversity in linguistics, and much more. Jade, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat today. The very first question I have for you is, you know, you've done so many cool things across the AI world. Looking at your most recent experiences, how would you describe your work to a five-year-old? I have five-year-olds in my life, my nieces and nephews. So yeah, I would essentially tell them I work with people who want to teach their computers to talk and see just like we do. That is the simplest way I could explain it. Love it. So you started your career in the world of marketing, then shifted into AI. What led that shift? What were some of the inflection points along the way that helped make that decision? I've had a very non-traditional entry into the tech world. I was not technical before coming into this space, but my linguistics background did help me. I went from experiential marketing to working in machine intelligence, and that actually just kind of, I would say, fell in my lap in a way. I was interviewing for a completely different role at a company that I was at some years ago. And although that role didn't pan out, the VP of the machine intelligence team reached out to me a few months later and said, listen, I have a role for you. I want you to join my team. You have this linguistics background. You have a sales and marketing background. That's what I need. Everything else we can teach you along mm -hmm. the way. And I said, yes, I'm glad I did because my experiential marketing role, the contract had ended at that point. And so I said, well, here's a great opportunity to jump into a really exciting space. And I have no regrets at all. Especially coming from a non-technical background and join the club there. What were some of the ways that you got up to speed? Like what were the things that you learned on the job? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the companies, my clients and I were working with at the time when I first started in this space, it was pretty much sink or swim. You know, I started my first day and it's like, this is what we do. Okay, go sell. It helped that the clients that I was working with, they were working with natural language processing. So mm -hmm. that's where the linguistics background came into play. They were training voice assistants and chatbots. So this was long before ChatGPT and, and Gemini, but I definitely had to do a lot of self-learning. So educating myself, making sure I knew my customers inside and out, what their use cases were, all of my company's products and service offerings really leaned on my manager and my other colleagues as mentors, especially the more technical colleagues like my solutions architects, the program managers who have been running these programs for years. Did a lot of reading. I like to say that I'm a lifelong learner, a lifelong student. Watched a lot of webinars, did a lot of asking questions. A lot of people are afraid to ask questions. I am not. Attended a lot of tech-focused events, worked on doing online courses just to learn as much as I can. And then also what really helped was networking with people in my industry who were subject matter experts in natural language processing, in machine intelligence, because it wasn't just natural language processing. I mean, we had a breadth of machine intelligence related products and services that we offered. So really just leaning on people who knew more than I knew so that I could be in a space where one day I too could, someone could lean on me and I could mentor them as they're taking the leap into this industry. And within that industry, even just looking at like the past five to eight years, I feel like things have changed dramatically mm -hmm. and it's only accelerating since then. Looking at, say, your earliest experiences working on enterprise data annotation to more recent ones, 
Are there any major ways you think the industry has changed? One I'll say there is so much data. <laughs> and I think at one point I was having conversations with people like, are we actually going to ever run out of data to collect? That's something that I think about. But I think one of the things is that companies are collecting so much data. And in, in many times what I've seen working with different clients, it's more data than they actually need and they end up wasting a lot of it. And believe it or not, data does go bad. And then also as the machines get smarter, I think one thing that's changing a lot is the human in the loop. It's not going to become more obsolete, but you won't need it at the scale that you have it now. For example, with data annotation, I've worked in computer vision and natural language processing. So you collect this data and yes, you have the humans in the loop doing the annotation, but at some point your machine is going to be optimized to a point where maybe it can, or a lot of the customers are starting to build their own data annotation platforms where they can bring it in-house and it's automated. So yes, you still need the human in the loop because humans can do things. They still have capabilities that the machine don't, but that has definitely changed over the years. A lot of companies have started to scale back on the human in the loop data annotation piece. More companies are really figuring out how to bring it in-house and automate it with their own technologies. And I also think as companies continue to test and train and optimize these models, like I said, the models are getting smarter in terms of computer vision, instant recognition, NLP. The machine's going to learn, hey, maybe we don't need as much manual data annotation as we used to. I wouldn't say that it's going to be completely phased out, but if the human annotators are doing their jobs correctly, then the machines are definitely getting smarter. And do you see that pull of companies bringing in the annotation services and technology applying towards the actual human labor there too, and having that be done by internal teams versus vendors? Yeah. So oftentimes companies are sourcing this to outside vendors because they just don't have the capacity to do it in-house or they want their engineers and their data science teams to do something other than annotation because annotation can be kind of mundane and monotonous. If you have a company that has humans in the loop and they have a platform, well, maybe we can save if we just use your platform to annotate it, especially if the platform's automated to a point that it can do what's called machine-assisted annotation, where the machine can do most of the work and have the human review it, maybe make some tweaks here and there. But hey, maybe we can use your platform ourselves and not even have the human in the loop piece. It saves money, especially with the way the economy is trending. People are scared. So people are starting to scale back more on what they're spending in terms of manual data annotation. Along those lines, there's so much talk these days about responsible AI development and different ethical ways mm -hmm. to develop it. How do you think those frameworks apply at the data annotation level? So that does go back to what I was saying about the machine can't do everything. There are certain things that you're going to always need the human in the loop for. When it comes to data privacy, that's a big one. Machines don't know. They can't, unless you have the human in the loop training it or the human flagging sensitive information or sensitive things like, let's take something, this is an extreme example, but like child pornography, things like that you're still going to need that human piece because data privacy is very important. How is the machine algorithm trained? We know that there is algorithmic bias. That is not a secret. It is a thing. And so I think that you're still going to need that human supervision to ensure data privacy, to ensure that there's no algorithmic bias. But even with algorithmic bias, that's like a whole thing. Like who's actually training the models? Are these people from diverse backgrounds with diverse perspectives. So yeah, the machine can't do everything. There are some things that these AI annotation tools are still struggling with in terms of being able to completely remove the human in the loop. So like I said, data privacy, even data quality, 
oftentimes you have these automated platforms that are mislabeling. You know, for example, you have certain autonomous vehicle <laughs> companies. They're building these autonomous vehicles, but the data is saying that, oh, that's a light pole and it's really a human being. You're having those issues with data quality in terms of mislabeling and accuracy as well. And then also, I think when it comes to things like pre-annotation, I think that the annotation platforms are good for that, but also they still have a limited skill set in terms of certain annotation tasks like pre-annotation. Shifting gears a bit on top of all of that, you also recently published a really interesting paper in the area of sociolinguistics. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how you landed on that topic? Yeah, absolutely. So working in natural language processing all these years in computer vision and talking about algorithmic bias, one of the things that I started exploring, because I actually started working on this paper in graduate school, was part of a capstone project and I wanted to continue working on it. And I was thinking of ways of how to incorporate my technical acumen that I do have from working in this space for so long with the project. And one of them I came up with was looking at cultural identity and code switching in terms of voice design, which is a work in progress right now. So it'll be an expansion of what I'm currently working on, which is a paper that I've yet to publish, but will be publishing at some point. And it's basically looking at cultural code switching and how it correlates to identity with a specific focus on African-American vernacular English amongst middle-class African-Americans. So your African-Americans who tend to have more advanced degrees, who middle-class a lot of times in the past, looking at research around different dialects of English focused on African-American English specifically, a lot of times researchers would skip over middle-class African-Americans completely forget about us. Like, hey, we use the dialects too. So that's a linguistic term. It's a term called linguistic lanes when you just completely forgotten about this whole group of African-Americans who use this dialect. What about us? So that's what I was looking at, how people in the middle-class group or how African-Americans in the middle-class use African-American English, how it correlates to their identity, when they use it, why they use it. Are they aware that they use it. So like I said, it's not published yet, will be. I presented it this year for the second and third time at two linguistic symposiums, one at the University of Colorado and then one at the University of Western Brittany in France. And uh, it's just really great to be able to talk about this. And I'll tell you, it's really interesting to talk about African-American language and culture to a room full of French linguists, <laughs> but they had great questions. It was great conversation. And I'm just really excited to continue the work and continue the research. There's so much data that I was able to pull from that. My participants were great. I got a great response and just really excited to publish it. Merging that with your work in the NLP world, say for all of the language teams that you've advised over the years, how do you take the issues that you've identified in your sociolinguistics work and help a natural language team almost productize and incorporate that diversity? What are some of the things that our researcher can do? It starts even higher than the researcher themselves. We all have some biases around language and culture and identity. I think it starts with bringing in, if you're researching or let's say you're researching how to productize a new tool, take it to market in terms of language, you have to one, consider you have to be culturally intelligent and the language falls under the cultural aspect. So I think you, one, need to have diverse set of researchers, but not even just culturally diverse, but also with that thinking, you have to have diverse perspectives as well. 
oftentimes we really harp on diversity, 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 and we're only talking about the physical outward instead of also incorporating, let's have people that have diverse perspectives as well. So that's where it starts. And then you can go from there. So we have, you know, if you're building these large language models or building things like when I use Ave with Alexa, she doesn't understand what I'm talking about, but who designed Alexa? Not people that look like me per se, not people that may use the dialect per se. So those are some things you have to look at when you're building out these teams to develop these different platforms that are trying to understand language. There isn't just one dialect of any language. And it's easier said than done, I'm sure. You have these huge companies that have been building these voice assistants and chatbots for years, but having diverse perspectives and voices and people in the room in terms of, you know, when you're building out your research teams, your language engineers, your linguistic engineers, language modelers, that's really important. Looking at the world sort of beyond ML, just things in our world in general, are there any companies or products or teams that you think have incorporated diversity well? There are companies that are trying, but I think there's always room for growth. I think a lot of companies have given really great lip service in terms of, hey, we're going to incorporate diversity. But then when you look at how the DEI initiatives are trending in the tech world, they're not trending in the positives. I think that a lot of these during the pandemic, when companies were going on these, hey, we support X, Y, and Z groups, and we're going to create these DNI initiatives. And then fast forward two years later, they're all la- they're laying off their DNI teams, and we're right back to where we started. We're right back to square one. So off the top of my head, no, I can't. I mean, you have companies that are trying, but I can't say that there are companies that are like okay, we got it. We're getting it right. I think there's always room for growth. I think in those terms, I would look at companies that are woman-founded, that have a diverse board of directors, that are maybe founded by Black, Indigenous, people of color. Those are the companies that I would say, hey, we're legitimately trying. Again, not going to name names, but there are companies that, you know, their CEO left, came back and fired the board. And they hired an all-new board that looks nothing like it's just all white men. So in terms of with the diversity, one company I can think of, and maybe it's because I'm in the weeds with this company is Poyeto, which is a company I've been working with for the last six months. And our entire mission is to make AI and emerging technology tools accessible to everyone, make sure it's ethical. And when we say accessible, we mean making it so that people who typically wouldn't have the access to these can also create technologies, not just access them. Well, along those lines of diversity, then, I also saw that you're board member of Feminist.ai. Could you tell us a bit about your work there and some of the upcoming initiatives? Yeah. So Feminist AI, I've been a part of that organization. It's a research collaborative based in Los Angeles. And I've been a part of this organization since 2018 as a moderator. We did an international book club in the middle of COVID, which was very exciting. It was virtual, so everybody was safe. I was moderating our book club, which we read Dr. Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression. We had guest speakers. It was great. I'm collaborating with them on my research. They've been sponsoring my research, and I'm also a board member there. And actually, my work with Feminist AI, essentially what we do is we consult with people who are wanting to design emerging technologies, but they want to do it in an ethical way. And so that's what we're doing there at Feminist AI, just not only consulting, but also helping to create ethical AI. And because of my work with Feminist AI, the founder of that organization also founded Poyeto. And I've also been working with them on just helping to 
educate the education sector on emerging technologies. It was very eye-opening for me to see that the education sector tends to be behind the curve when it comes to AI machine learning, which is kind of ironic because you would think these are people who are teaching us. They should be ahead of the curve, but they are not. So Puerto, founded by the founder of Feminist AI, a woman founded and BIPOC woman run organization made up of a very diverse group of subject matter experts in AI, machine learning, deep learning, and education. Are there any particular aspects of EdTech that you're focusing on there? Puerto is basically this EdTech startup in LA. We're at the intersection of AI, art, and ethics. So what we do is we're helping to create non-traditional pathways into technology for people like you and I who have non-traditional backgrounds. But we're also teaching that, or it's an AI tool, and it's designed to integrate and educate responsible AI and creative technology to not only students, K through 12, but higher ed, into educators. And then another initiative we're working on also, like with Feminist AI, we're providing AI consulting and training to C-suite executives and people who are industry leaders in their specific vertical or their specific space. But, you know, teaching them that, hey, AI is not a tool to fear because there's a lot of hesitation around emerging technologies in the education space and even in a space that I'm very familiar with, even in industrial automation. We're just really trying to provide these tools and this education to the ed tech sector in terms of, hey, let's talk about responsible AI. Let's talk about creative technology. Let's get the students ahead of the curve. We don't want them to be behind. So it sounds like you're working on innovating in the ed tech space, producing some great social linguistic research. Assuming that's not busy enough already, is there um, <laughs> anything else that you're cooking up next? Hey, I'm a Renaissance woman. I have my hands in a lot of pots. I've always been like that. Like I want to try as many things as I can. There's just so much to learn. There's so much that to do. And I really am just really tapping into all my talents. Like I have all these talents. Let's use them. Let's use them for good. Let's teach people how to create responsible AI. Let's teach people how to use it. One of the things that I've learned working in this space is that a lot of education needs to happen, not just in the education sector, but even in, like I was saying before, I've worked with manufacturing companies and there's a lot of education that needs to happen with them. A lot of them think AI is just magic. And sure, AI at this point has become a buzzword because, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, it's taking over. And it's like, okay, calm down, guys. Like, let's calm down. First of all, AI is not new. It's been around for years. You've been using it for years. Your iPhone in and of itself is built on an AI platform uh, or your Android, whatever people choose to use. But yeah, I keep my hands in a lot of pots. I'm continuing to, you know, work on my research, working with Poeto consulting for robotics drone and manufacturing companies that are trying to integrate emerging technologies in a transformational way with their organization because that's a big undertaking. If you look at companies like GM and Ford, these are hundred year old companies. And I talked about this on my LinkedIn not too long ago, trying to implement emerging technologies in a transformational way within some of these companies. It's a big undertaking and it's very expensive. I learned very quickly when I started working in computer vision, specifically with robotics and manufacturing companies, that a lot of these companies are still running on Windows 95. And the warehouse manager's like, you know what? We like it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. I'm like, but you could be so much more efficient. Just take baby steps into implementing small things. 
other things I'm working on. It's a long-winded way of saying that, yes, I'm continuing to, you know, just position myself or to continue helping these robotics and manufacturing companies just really flesh out their business use cases for implementing AI, providing this consultative leadership. Industry 4.0 really excites me. If you had asked me about it two years ago, I'd be like, what the heck is that? But <laughs> that just goes to show how quickly I really got into that and just got myself up to speed on what's going on in that space. I have a few other passion projects that I'm working on outside of machine learning and AI. I'm a, a writer and a storyteller, so I really love doing that. And I'm also working on getting my Part 107 drone license so that I can start flying drones. In my spare time, I like reading in-depth AI regulations from, you know, the White House and the EU. So those are all the rage right now. <laughs> well, you mentioned regulation there on the latest EU AI Act stuff. Is there any part of it that you're following most closely, any of the particular regulations in there? It's a work in progress, but they finalized the first set of negotiations. I think they negotiated for like 38 to 40 hours. I haven't read it in depth just yet. I've read over some summaries, but I plan on reading it in depth this week because I'm a nerd. But I would say that if I had to, I would say compare it to the White House's executive order, I think it's a little more detailed. I think the White House's executive order is a step in the right direction, but there are still a lot of questions around the who, the what, and the how in terms of how they're going to regulate it when you have, you know, NIST is a great organization. So I'm really glad that the White House partnered with them on this. And I guess some of the questions around it are for me, again, you know, the who, the what, and the how, how are you going to do it? It's great to say, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to make sure AI does this, but how? Let's get a little more detail. So it's a great first step to implementing guardrails. But again, there are also some things that AI just can't fix. There are some things that are so systemic that you're going to need a sweeping overall of mindset change in terms of, you know, to fix it. AI can't fix everything. It's not a fix-all be-all. It's a tool that's meant to help us, but we have to, or to help us solve problems, but we have to get to the root of the problem first. But I think the EU, I'm excited for them because they were kind of behind the curve in terms of kind of like the education sector. They were trying to play catch up and now they have these regulations, which I think now that they have this in place, it's definitely going to be a game changer for their technology sector as well. Jade, with all the stuff going on, it's going to be fun to uh, chat with you again in a couple of months and just to see yeah. how the world you have evolved at that point. Thank you so much for making time and sharing more about yourself and your journey. It's been super fun. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I always love talking about this stuff. So anytime, <laughs> anytime. Awesome. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 